Hey guys, it's Ellie, and welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. So, if you've never been here before, first of all, welcome. I hope you stick around, and I hope that you enjoy the chaos that will soon come. <laughs> because, oh boy. Just so that you know what's going on, I have this book. It's called Minute Mysteries, or Detectograms, by H.A. Ripley. It's linked in my show notes if you want to follow along. But essentially, it's just full of, well, Minute Mysteries. <laughs> And Minute Mysteries are essentially, if you don't know, they're like puzzles, like logic puzzles, deductive puzzles, things that just kind of test your logic deductive kind of skills. And they're so much fun. They're usually like kind of scenarios sort of things that you need to figure out. So yeah, I, I read three each episode, and then after I read one, I try my best to find the solution. And then once I either have no idea, have an idea, or have a full-on what I think is a solution, then I will read the solution together with you guys and we will all collectively sigh at my failure. <laughs> oh yeah. So last week I think I got one right, but considering that I got zero right the week before, that's pretty good. Actually no, I got one right the week before that too, so. Dude, if I get two right this week, I'll be record-setting pace, baby. <laughs> so yeah, with no more waffle, let's jump right in. Murder in the first degree. Well, Inspector, we have your man, said Fortney as he walked into the office. He gave us a merry chase, though. What a cool one this murderer is. He calmly ate his dinner while planning the crime. He didn't give the cashier a chance, just brutally shot him down in cold blood, and all for thirty dollars. I tell you, Inspector, a man doesn't need much incentive to commit murder these days. After shooting the cashier, he made a fast getaway in a waiting car. Fortunately, there was a policeman having dinner in the restaurant at the time, and he gave orders that nothing was to be disturbed at the table where the suspected murderer had eaten. There are several witnesses who will identify him, including the waitress who served him, but no jury will convict on that alone. While I found none of these suspects' fingerprints, personal effects, or physical traces at or on the table, I did find there a sure means of conviction. I am positive he calmly premeditated this outrage while eating his dinner. I hope you're right, Professor, said Inspector Kelly, but both he and his attorney seem confident. They claim the gun was discharged accidentally. They'll never get away with that. The prosecuting attorney will be able to prove that this man deliberately planned the crime while eating his dinner. It's murder in the first degree. How did the professor know the crime was premeditated? So, <laughs> apparently this, there was a crime committed and we need to figure out uh, how it, we know that it was premeditated, which is actually a very interesting question. My first thought is that we know it's premeditated because he had a getaway car waiting for him. So, I mean, <laughs> I would say that's that's pretty damning when it comes to evidence because like if he literally had a getaway car like of course it was premeditated because he knew that he'd have to make a quick escape you know what kind of accidental murderer has a getaway car i mean <laughs> unless it's like a hit and run but that doesn't count because it's a traffic crime but i don't think that that's the solution because later forney says that he found evidence that the murder was premeditated at the table even though there were no fingerprints personal effects or physical traces at or on the table so, <laughs> he is not giving us very many good clues here. But, I mean, oh man, all I can think of is the getaway car, but that could easily be disproven. It could just be a coincidence or something, or maybe like a taxi or something, I don't know. So, let's kind of review the story. Uh, so, literally all we have is that he shot down the cashier in cold blood for $30 after he ate his dinner. And somehow we know that he was planning the crime when he ate his dinner? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, this would be easy if, like, he was loading his pistol during his dinner and there was, like, a bullet left on the table or something, but, like, I don't think he was loading his gun during dinner. And also, 
there weren't any personal effects at or on the table, so I don't know, man. So I think essentially the question is we need to find a form of evidence that is not fingerprints, personal effects, or other physical traces. Which is really vague. <laughs> so, oh, dang. Um, I mean, maybe it's about, like, the position of the table. Like, maybe uh, the suspect intentionally chose a table where they could see the cashier or where they would get a certain waitress or something. I mean, that's possible. I think it's strange that there was a policeman having dinner in the restaurant at the time that the murder occurred, and yet they don't mention him trying to stop the murderer or catch the murderer at all. They only mention him stopping everyone else from touching the table where the criminal sat. But, like, he doesn't, like, chase after the criminal afterwards, even though he ran into a running car. Like, he didn't even try, as far as we know, to stop this murder. So I think that's kind of suspicious. I mean, that could easily not be evidence at all. I don't know. Fordney says again and again that he knew that the crime was planned while eating his dinner. So maybe it's something to do with what he ate or what he ordered. Like, what? <laughs> Actually, I think that the angle that I kind of got it before of, like, he chose the table intentionally so that he could see his victim or something. Like, maybe that's a bit of evidence. Maybe that's, like, how he knew that he was planning it during his dinner was because he could, you know, he chose a table specifically so that he could see the cashier. Oh, man, I don't know. I'm kind of out of ideas. I think I'm just going to go with my thought that Fordney knew that the murderer was planning it because they chose a table specifically so that they could see their victim or they could see something. <laughs> I don't know, something along the lines of they chose a table that was in a specific position. Maybe it was closer to the door so they could escape, or maybe it was closer to the cashier so they could shoot them easier. I don't know, one of those, that's going to kind of be my idea of solution. So yeah, let's read it and see if I was correct. The fact that none of the suspect's fingerprints were on the dishes or silver used while eating convicted him of first-degree murder. In wiping his own prints from the things he had handled, he destroyed all prints, those of the waitress, cook, etc., a damning bit of evidence that proved premeditation. Oh, that makes so much sense. Oh, man. Yeah, I was kind of like, I literally just forgot that there were dishes. Like, in my head, I was just imagining a blank table. But, like, he literally ate. And then the police officer made sure that nothing was disturbed. So I assume his dishes were still there. I don't know why I thought that they had cleared his table. <laughs> oh, man. Dude, that was a really good one. I guess that does make a ton of sense, huh? Well played. Well played, Fortney. Well played. I like that. Okay. Let's move on to the next one, shall we? A Rendezvous with Death One runs into unique conspiracies in my work, said Professor Fortney, over his after-dinner coffee. Here is the clue to that stone case you are all interested in, he continued, passing the following newspaper advertisement. Wanted. Competent private secretary. Unusual salary and opportunity for young man speaking Spanish. Culture and refinement necessary qualifications. Address KR-164. I don't see how that gave you a lead. Looks innocent enough to me, remarked one of the guests. Well, said the professor, that ad furnished the strongest link in my chain of evidence. I had information that Jack Carroll was infatuated with Stone's wife. At the suggestion of his wife, Stone answered this ad and received a reply requesting him to call for a personal interview. That interview was with death. Mrs. Stone, when questioned, Mrs. Stone, when questioned, said she and her husband had not been on particularly friendly terms recently, and that the last she saw of him was when he left for White Plains to see about the position. I called at the newspaper office and was informed that the ad had been inserted by Jonathan Gills, Pomeroy Hotel. They remembered it because Mr. Gills had telephoned asking if there were any replies to his ad. 
despite the affirmative answer, they had never been called for. I found Jonathan Gills was unknown at the Pomeroy Hotel. I learned from Mrs. Stone that her husband had answered the ad in longhand, and that he was left-handed and a very poor penman. Pondering the matter, though puzzled at first, I finally hit upon the matter in which Stone had been led to his death, concluded Fordney. How do you think it was done? Mmm, I see. So this uh, ad in the newspaper had something to do with luring specifically Mr. Stone to his death. So allow me to read the newspaper ad again, just so we can kind of have it in our minds while we're thinking about this. It reads, Wanted. Competent private secretary. Unusual salary and opportunity for young man speaking Spanish. Culture and refinement necessary qualifications. Address KR164. So, yeah, (laughs) that's kind of the clue that we're supposed to have. Although, I think that there is also a clue somewhere else. Wait, 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 wait. So, I'm unfamiliar with how old ads in old newspapers work. Wouldn't people have usually just responded with a letter and then... In response to that letter, you know, the giver of the ad would ask to meet or something. I think it would depend on the ad, but it sounds like this ad just said, send a letter here for the position. And obviously Mr. Stone did because he ended up dying while he was going there. But yeah, he sent a letter and it said um, at the very end that, quote, her husband had answered the ad in longhand and that he was left-handed and a very poor penman. Which, um, first of all, do not equate left-handedness with bad penmanship, even though it is true for me. I am left-handed, and I also have bad handwriting. But that's beside the point. I know left-handed people with good handwriting, okay? No. <laughs> uh, whatever. But, yeah, so, I think that Mr. Stone responded to the letter in, like, longhand. Like, he sent a letter, which I think is, you know, the usual thing to do. But then, according to Jonathan Gills, who was the person who gave the ad, they had never been called for. Why did Mr. Stone leave? Because, again, in his wife's testimony, she said that the last time that she saw her husband was when he left to go see about the position. But why did he leave? He didn't get called? (laughs) I don't think any of this is solution-related. I think this is all just my small little monkey brain having trouble being normal. (laughs) The professor gives a little bit more background after he reads off the ad. He says that Jack Carroll, whom I think was, like, ended up being a murderer or something? I don't know, it doesn't really say... Um, was infatuated with Mr. Stone's wife. And it was at the suggestion of his wife that Mr. Stone answered the ad. I think his wife was definitely in on it. And I think that she kind of pushed him to get out of the house and to go, you know, pursue this thing. So I think that she probably um, did some trick to get him to leave, even though, like I mentioned before, I don't think his ad ever got responded to, like his response to the ad ever got responded to. So I think that the uh, private secretary ad is legitimate. Because it says that um, Jonathan Gills was the guy who gave it. But I think that Mr. Stone's wife, after her husband had sent in a letter, pretended to receive a letter from the giver of the ad, telling him to meet the giver of the ad at White Plains or wherever, you know, he was going. But that ended up being, like, a false address and it ended up being where he got murdered. So I think that is actually a possibility. (laughs) It's just so that, um, it's just because, um... Mr. Stone's wife may have been infatuated with Jack Carroll back, and they might have wanted to kind of get rid of Mr. Stone. That's my line of thinking. There's a lot of assumptions involved in this, and it's probably not true, but I like the story I've made up in my head, so I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, let's read the solution and find out what it actually is, because I have no idea. No one called at the Times for the answers to the advertisement, yet Stone received a reply to his letter of application. The ad was inserted by Carol under the fictitious name of Jonathan Gills and answered by Stone at his wife's suggestion. She acquainted her lover, Carol, with this fact 
and he wrote Stone, arranging the meeting at which he disappeared. Okay, okay, so... <clears throat> I was almost correct. <laughs> I just thought that Jonathan Gills, who gave the ad, and Jack Carroll were different people. But they were the same, and that barely makes a difference, you know? Because the wife was still kind of in on it, you know? And, and Jack Carroll and the wife were kind of working together. So, oh man, should I give myself a half a point for that? Because I got a lot of them right. I just didn't realize that Jack Carroll kind of had an alter ego of Jonathan Gills or whatever his name is. So, because let's see what I got right. I got right that the wife was involved and that she was the one that leered Jack Carroll back. And she didn't write a fake note, but she, you know, had Jack Carroll write a fake note. And so, you know, she was involved and she was working with him to get rid of her husband. And so I think that that is good enough to give myself half a point. <laughs> you may disagree, but I don't care. So yeah, with that, let's move on to the final puzzle. A rum regatta. Here's a story that should amuse Eugene, said Professor Fordney to his efficient and charming secretary. He laughed heartily as he handed her a letter from his old friend, George Collins, government investigator in Florida. Jean read the following. An old sailor sitting on the sands of Nassau, mending his fishing net, was approached by three rum runners shortly after the break of dawn. They came seeking his advice in connection with a wager they had made among themselves the night before. The three of them, having sampled too freely of the liquor they were to take the next day to Miami, had put up $3,000 as a prize for the owner of the last boat to reach Miami. The fact that their boss was in a hurry for the liquor had been completely forgotten. Sobered, they realized the ridiculousness of the wager, but while anxious to reach Miami as quickly as possible, they all agreed it was not to be changed. The old sailor continued weaving the cords into his net with slow deliberation. In a few minutes, calling them to his side, he whispered exactly the same advice into the ear of each. A smile spread over his weather-beaten face, and he chuckled as the three rum runners raced to the boats and started for Miami at top speed. It is amusing, laughed Jean, but he forgot to say what the old sailor whispered. That's for you to figure out, young lady. I've never been a rum runner, but I've got the answer. What advice did the old sailor whisper to the rum runners? Oh, goodness, that's such a vague question. <laughs> okay, this is going to be really difficult. Let's kind of summarize. That's sometimes how I think the best, you know? Sometimes it helps me use my brain because I often fail at doing that. <laughs> Let's see, so there's this old sailor. He was sitting on the beach, weaving his fishing net, kind of fixing up holes. And three rum runners ran over to him shortly after the break of dawn. So it was, you know, morning. And they came and they asked his advice with a wager they had made the night before. So three of them were drunk on the liquor that they were supposed to take to Miami. So they had put up $3,000 as a prize for the owner of the last boat to reach Miami. So, <laughs> so they wanted to get to Miami as slow as possible, basically. However, like their boss wanted them to get to Miami really quickly, but they didn't really care about that. So, after a little bit, the three alcoholics kind of realized how ridiculous that was. And, you know, now that they're kind of sober, they do want to reach Miami as quickly as possible. However, they did not want to change the wager that they made. And so, the old sailor, you know, he thinks for a little bit, and then he whispers the exact same advice into each ear. And then, right after that, all three rum runners raced to the boats and started for Miami at top speed. Bro, I just googled it, and Nassau, which is where the, you know, this all happened, is in the Bahamas. It's the capital of the Bahamas, which I was unaware of because I've never been to the Bahamas, but that's where it is. Like, if you think of Cuba, it's like between Florida and Cuba, you know? That's just kind of where it is if you didn't know where Nassau was. And so, 
essentially the boat ride is really quick. So if I were the sailor, I would probably tell them to take a long cut, like go around Cuba or like go around South America and take like a ridiculously long route. However, the sailors still want to get to Miami quickly. And it says they all headed towards Miami at top speed. So they aren't like going backwards and going like a really long way just to get there last. So, oh man, um... I mean, all I can think of is the sailor telling them to go a different route that's like a longer route, but it's, like I said before, like, it just says that the three rum runners immediately raced to the boats and started going at top speed. I mean, <laughs> and clearly, like, they're not going to break their wagers, so they still want to get there as slow as possible, but they get into their boats and they go top speed. What the heck? <laughs> that's so weird. What? Oh, I think I've heard a similar puzzle to this before, but I can't remember the solution. I think it was some really, like, dumb technical solution, which, obviously, this is a mini-mystery, so that's kind of uh, a given. Wouldn't it be funny if the sailor just told all the sailors to get as drunk as possible, and then just go? <laughs> that would be kind of funny, just like a bunch of completely blackout drunken sailors driving boats. I swear I've heard a puzzle like this before, but I can't remember what it was. You know what? I'm, I'm out of ideas. My only idea is that he told him to go a different route, but that's a really dumb idea. So let's just read the solution and see if anything I threw stuck. The old sailor whispered to each, Run to the other man's boat. As the owner of the last boat to reach Miami was to get the money, each one raced the boat he was driving. By doing so, he hoped to beat his own boat, which was being driven by one of the others. Oh, see, I have seen this puzzle before. I remember it. I've seen, like, I've, I've had a similar puzzle thrown at me before. Oh my goodness, my head is as thick as a brick. <laughs> oh man, that's a good one. That's a really good one. That's that's like a classic. I swear I've heard it in some other context. Man, bravo, Fortney, bravo. <laughs> so I got half a point, somewhat half a point. I mean, I don't know if it really counts, but I got a half a point. Not great, but honestly not bad. And the ones that I got wrong, I still enjoyed analyzing and I still enjoyed the solution. So all in all, it's a win. <laughs> There is no winning and losing at this game. So anyways, if you read along with uh, the link in the show notes that I'd mentioned to you before, great. <laughs> I hope you had fun. Um, these stories, I mean, it's kind of fun to be able to read them along with me and then get the solution quicker than me, or maybe just read the solution and then listen to my drunken ramblings about being confused. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine that's pretty interesting. But anyways, so I just have a couple things to mention, first of all. If you enjoyed the show, or if you want to tell me about your experiences trying to follow along, or if you just have, you know, feedback, comments, whatever like that, especially actually if you want to send me recommendations of authors or books or puzzles that you want me to try, um, send them to classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. My email is also in the show notes. Also, if you've never listened before, I imagine that you're somewhat confused because I've been calling this episode Minute Mysteries, but you're on the Classic Mysteries podcast feed. But this is kind of my sub-series, my mini-series that I do every week on Thursdays. My main episodes, even though they've ended up kind of being the same length <laughs> recently, um, my main episodes release on Mondays. The, the whole idea is that I read books and then I just kind of comment on them as I go, you know. Because, again, I'll be reading books for the first time. And so you're getting my, like, real reactions when I'm reading it. And it's it's a fun time, you know. It's, it's really fun. Right now I'm reading a story I've never read before. It's called The Man with Nailed Shoes. So if you want to tune in next Monday, actually, for the conclusion of that, feel free. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... 
I hope that you'd listen to some of my other episodes. There's a bunch of Minute Mysteries backlog you can listen to. There are a bunch of really good completed stories you can listen to of the regular episodes. Like, for example, I just recently did some Agatha Christie and some Sherlock Holmes, like in the last just couple of episodes. I hope you'll enjoy those. Um, But yeah, have a good rest of your week because I have definitely had a good week this week and I hope that you guys do as well. So, bon voyage!